Um, good morning, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Um, so uh, this morning, our beatitude is blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, I was prepping this and uh, finished it yesterday. Okay, disclosure. And uh, But there was a book uh, at my mom's and I thought, it was a book in the Sermon in the Mount, and I thought, I'll, I'll just go and read it, because sometimes you want to check another comment, just to see in case there's anything you've missed, okay? So I opened it at the chapter, a whole chapter, that was the first thing, a whole chapter just in this verse. And this is what I read, right? Um, we come now to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture, Anyone who realizes even something of the meaning of these words can approach them only with a sense of awe and of complete inadequacy. So, no pressure. All right. um, I'm also the first person ever to get a cheap laugh from a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. So, if you know, you know. Um, but seriously, um, first of all, uh, an apology. I have no visuals this morning, but I do have a prop that I'll use later. Um, But seriously, uh, I'm finding this series on the Beatitudes incredibly challenging. Um, I think Dave or Stuart described it as an onion, that every week it feels a layer is being stripped back. I think Stuart described it as taking the layers of wallpaper and paint away from his house, which is a really brilliant illustration. Um, So I'm just recycling it rather than coming up with my own. But what's resonating powerfully with me as we work through this series is the contrast between the the kingdom of God envisaged by Jesus and the sort of lives kingdom people are supposed to live versus the reality of what I see when I look at my phone, when I walk down the street, um, when I talk to both people who don't know Jesus and sometimes people who do. And as we've been working through this series, I've been consistently, consistently reminded that this world is not my home, okay? It's generating a kind of homesickness in me. Um, and part of me is, is actually thankful that I'm a pilgrim who's just passing through, that Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for me. And I know that saying that, is, is really old-fashioned and unpopular, okay? Um, that notion that, that this world is not my home. But I want you to get me here. When I'm saying that, I'm not rejecting the goodness of God's creation, as if this world and everything in it is a sinking ship, and all we've got to do is, 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 is knuckle down and keep our heads down until we get to heaven. What I mean is this. When I listen and hear these words of Jesus, it's clear to me that so much of this world is not how God intends it to be. And so much of me is not how God intends me to be. So there's a deep challenge here. That's me speaking personally. Yet weirdly listening these words week after week, I'm also getting this sense of hope and life and expectation bubbling up in me because they're reminding me that the kingdom of God isn't 100% future tense. It can break in. It can break into me. It can break through and into the world in the here 
and now, and genuine kingdom ground can be claimed in the here and now, at this moment in history, even if it's partial or fleeting. Um, I don't know if you've seen it this week, but this year's Collins Dictionary Word of the Year is permacrisis. You see that? Permacrisis. Uh, a permacrisis is described as an extended period of instability and insecurity. Um, and I think that accurately sums up the world we're living in right now. It's an inescapable fact that we are living in turbulent times. Uh, me and Lindsay went to see a film on Thursday night. Thursday night is date night, okay? So never ring me on a Thursday night. <laughs> went to see a film called The Banshees of Ennis Aaron, okay? Um, it's set on an island off the west coast of Ireland in 1923. Um, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson is very good. Um, against the backdrop of this movie, the Irish Civil War is happening on the mainland, and at points in the movie you hear distant cannon fire and maybe a gunshot or just a rumble, um, but it doesn't factor in the lives of the inhabitants of the island, okay? They're able to live their lives in isolation from what's happening over there, but we don't have that luxury. We can't escape the live feed there is no island isolation for us. So we feel like we're constantly in the thick of things, living in and through it all, moment by moment. And here's the thing. I think that sometimes our brains aren't very good at distinguishing between an immediate danger, like a hungry lion on the other side of the door, and a more remote danger, like some article we land on in our daily doom scroll, okay? They generate the same fight, flee, or freeze reactions. But the problem is, with these big global problems, we can't be saviors and heroes for us so little in our capacity we can do to make a change. I'll be honest, lately this has been really getting to me. It's been weighing heavy on me, uh, and it's me being vulnerable, open. One morning, um, um, I was close to overwhelm, and Lydia will know wherever she is because she works for me, and she has to see that, and so does Lindsay every day. Um, and I was close to overwhelm, and I did that thing that really mature Christians do, you know, just randomly open the Bible and hope that God speaks to you, right? Um, and in this case, it worked, yay. Um, opened John 14, okay, John 14, if you know it, really, really familiar words. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Um, and I read right through the John 16, 33, where Jesus says, take courage, I have overcome the world. Take courage, I have overcome the world. Um, and I was, as soon as I read um, that John 14, one verse, um, I just felt this, and it sounds like a contradiction, but an intense peace, an intense peace, um, and, and, an over, and a kind of just vivid realization of God's presence um, just flood uh, over me and, and work through me. Um, and as I got to the, the end of John 14, or John 16, um, the message of the passage hit home. Jesus claimed what he's saying, what he's staking out here hit home. That Jesus has already done the work necessary to save the world. 
Jesus has already done the work necessary to save the world. And he did that by establishing his kingdom as a rival to this fallen world. And in the end, the kingdom of Jesus will be fully realized in a new heaven and a new earth. So I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be afraid. And I feel we need to claim that as a central conviction in our lives. Because it means, in the face of the perma-crisis, okay, we're not actually powerless. We're not powerless. Jesus has laid down a manifesto in these Beatitudes for the kingdom of God. A manifesto for children of the Father. And we can make a difference. We have a work to do. There's activism, solutions, priorities we can pursue as we seek to live out this kingdom rule of Jesus. So there's work to do. But the flip side of that is what we prioritize, what we consider solutions, what we consider remedies might be really radically out of sync with the mainstream of society, hence the warning of persecution we're going to think about in a few weeks. But as we come to this beatitude, I want to set the tone by reminding us that Jesus loves us, okay, and he has set us free to do a unique work for him and a unique work in us. So the pure in heart will see God. Um, that's this week's beatitude. First of all, what's our heart? What's our heart? Um, elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart can be hardened. The heart can be humble. The heart can choose to love. The heart can choose to plot evil. You see, the heart is the center of our decision-making and understanding. It's the place of our values and convictions. You know, I don't know if you know someone um, who can be a little insensitive, right? <laughs> they say really annoying things. They act sometimes in cruel and really annoying ways, right? People like that. Uh, but there's always someone who comes, over def- comes to your defense and says, aye, but they've got a good heart, don't they? You know? They act like a complete something, but they've got a good heart. <laughs> um, but that completely goes against the claims Jesus makes about our heart. You see, Jesus says it's our actions, or what he calls our fruit, that shows the state of our heart. It's out of the overflow of the heart that we act. And I remember one time at Carmona, I uh, booked this kind of semi-famous speaker from America to come without really telling anyone, and he was really expensive, and it, the whole thing was really awkward, and I can't remember anything that he said, apart from one illustration, right? <laughs> Um, where he got a cup and, and he filled it full and he asked someone uh, to come and like, nudge into him and some water came out of the cup and he said, what comes out of us when we're pushed is what's in our heart. What comes out of us when we're pushed is what's in our heart. And here's the point. When we say to someone, just go with your heart, right? We're usually saying, go against your understanding, go against reason, go against uh, uh, your judgment and choose your gut feeling instead, okay? 
Now, now if there's truth in that gut feeling, um, it's more likely our soul showing up, not our heart, okay? Because the heart is the center of our judgment and character and decision-making. When Jesus tells us to be pure in heart, uh, we jump the notions of, of sin, holiness, sexual purity, and all those things are part of purity of heart. But it's so much more than that. Because a pure heart is undivided or unswerving. It's marked by integrity and singleness. Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. To be pure in heart is to have a single-minded devotion, to be loyal. It is head, heart, and spirit, all given over to one thing. Um, Kierkegaard um, wrote a book, um, a little devotional, an unpreached sermon, and it was called this. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this beatitude like this. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. Purity of heart is our inside life and outside life being in unison. Um, are you ready for the prop? Right. I realize it's going to be really awkward to do like while holding the microphone. Um, but here's how I think of it. Right. Here's how I think of purity of heart. Right. It's like sheet of paper. Right. Ooh. Um, but obviously, the sheet of paper's got two sides. Right. And that's often how our life is. We have the outside presentation. Okay. On one side, and we have the inside life. Okay, and very often what's in the inside doesn't correspond to what's in the outside. Okay, apologies if you've seen this before, but some people won't and they'll be amazed, right? Okay, so outside and inside and they often are out of sync, right? But what it means to have a pure heart is this. By putting a simple twist in this piece of paper, and you've got to try this at home, right? If you were to run your finger along this piece of paper now, you'll find it no longer has two sides. It has one side, okay? Um, it's kind of a, a mathematical wonder. It's called a Mobius strip or an infinity loop, okay? It's often used in conveyor belts, okay? Because it gets um, like equal wear in the conveyor belt. That's the most boring fact you're going to learn this week, right? <laughs> um, here's the thing. The outside and the inside are now one, okay? It's an infinity loop. Um, this is what it means to have a pure heart. The inside and the outside life are completely consistent, okay? Um, inside and outside, in unison. Consistency, integrity, singleness. That's what purity of heart is. But more than this, the whole of, the whole of the scriptures are crystal clear that there is a right direction, an orientation, a posture for our heart. But when pursued, gets our hearts and order, and simply, it's God, it's God. Old theologians, a long time ago, used to talk about something called the sensus divinitatis, right? Which literally means the sense of the divine. Or like we used to say in early 2000s uh, youth talks, there's a God-shaped hole in every single one of us, right? 
Um, but it's not so much that it's a hole or, or a missing piece of a puzzle that's got to be, be filled. The census divinitatis, the sense of the divine, it's more like a homing beacon. And everyone's heart, there's a homing beacon looking to go to the creator. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Stuart said my favorite quote ever is Augustine. He said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O Lord. And I believe it's this uniquely human restlessness that drives all of human culture and history. But the problem is, when human hearts are given over to wrong desires, what the Bible calls idols, it's destructive. It's destructive for the inside part of our life, and um, it breaks that unison. It's destructive for the world outside. For our hearts to be at peace, to be balanced, to have integrity, they need to pursue God as the only object worthy of our worship. Um, I, I kind of find it helpful to think of my heart as a map, okay? But the, the heart is the map the soul follows. But if our heart is a map, what Jesus is saying is there should just be one big X marks the spot, one true destination to which our heart should be orientated. Where God is, is where our hearts should be. For God is the ultimate treasure our hearts are longing for. Um, listen to Tyler Staten interview with Tim Mackey and just as a throwaway quote, he said this, the best thing about following Jesus is always Jesus. The best thing about following Jesus is always Jesus. Um, the Christian life is not just about the benefits here and future we get from Jesus. It is about God as our ultimate treasure. So our hearts should be pure. But what do the pure in heart receive? Will the pure in heart get what they most want? They will see God. They will see God. Um, I loved, like, probably like most of us, like, um, so much American TV growing up. Um, like Friends and Seinfeld and The Simpsons and all the movies you watch and you just, you're absolutely saturated with this other culture um, which is so similar but so different here um, on the other side of the Atlantic and it was only through Lindsay that I got to go to the States for the first time and it's, um, it's mad because things that are so normal the people over there, you're seeing them for the first time like, oh look, it's one of the big yellow buses you know, um, like McDonald's is different over there what? Um, but the point I'm making is there's a difference between thinking about something that's true and actually coming face to face with it for the first time. Henri Nouwen, uh, the Christian writer, um, writes a chapter um, in his book in The Prodigal Son where, where he had obsessed over this Rembrandt painting um, of, of the homecoming of the prodigal son. Um, but he talks about the experience where, where he went to the hermitage to see it and, and they allowed him to come at night, okay, after the place had closed, just to sit in a stool. And he, for, for like eight hours, he just contemplated this painting that was in front of him. He, he, he had seen copies of it, he'd thought about it in depth, but it was the difference between meditating on, on the painting and coming face to face 
with it. Here's what I'm getting at. The pure in heart will see God. The fancy word for for that seeing is contemplation. And to contemplate is to take a long, adoring look at the object of our desire. To know something by thinking about it and to know something by experiencing it directly are totally different ways of knowing. And sometimes our prayers and thoughts are kind of homesick love letters for the beloved, okay? But the hope of the pure in heart is that there will be a joyful reunion and embrace true communion. At this beatitude, it's future tense. And in heaven, we will certainly see God. In the end, on the day of judgment, if we know Jesus, we will be accepted in the God's presence forever. And that is wonderful. And that's an anchor. But like all the beatitudes, the rewards can be partly received in the here and now. And there's clues as to what that might look like as we look through the scriptures to find examples of people who saw God this side of heaven in the land of the living. Um, The first is Jacob. Jacob is probably my favorite character in the whole of the Bible. And there's a story that when when Jacob, it's it's such an earthly story. I always describe it as a Jerry Springer story, right? There's this weird family dynamic of rivalry and uh, mom against father and brother against brother. And uh, Jacob essentially steals the birthright from Esau, his brother, at his mom's instruction. Esau wants to kill him, so he goes in the run. God doesn't factor anywhere in the story. Um, and he's out, out in the run, and he's exhausted. It says he's in the wilderness, and he, and he lies down. And he puts a stone beneath his head, and as he sleeps, um, he sees a ladder going up to heaven, and angels going up and down the ladder, and he wakes up in the morning and says, surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. Um, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. And here's the thing. God wasn't present in the vision and the manifestation, okay? God was already in that place before Jacob arrived and after he left. Um, Think of Moses in the wilderness, Again, 40 years tending um, Jephro's plot of land, um, looking after the sheep, familiar surroundings. Then one morning he goes out and he sees a burning bush and he encounters the Lord in that place of familiarity in a powerful way. Later in his life, um, the people of Israel describe Moses as the one who would speak to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Or Isaiah in the temple. Sure, like church, you went there all the time, worship there. But in the year that King Uzziah died, something was different. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robes filled the temple. Over disciples, For three years, they were walking with this man, Jesus. And then he takes three of them up a mountain, okay? And he's transfigured in front of them. And they they see this divine glory around them. This same Jesus, okay? But they had known for three years. The light fades. He walks down the mountain. What I love about all these stories is that God is present in the ordinary every day. Simply there present all along, a 
is the same one true, holy, and living God, gently inhabiting the world he made to dwell in. And the visions, the dreams, the transfigurations, they aren't manifestations of a divine presence. They are wake-up calls, reminders that the gift is already given. Like the Lord waking the teenage Samuel. You know, that story, he's in bed. Like every teenager sleeping. And, uh, and, and the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. It's a prompt. It's a prompt to wake up and realize what is really here. You know, pet peeve of mine, and I'm not getting anyone who does this, I, I totally understand it, but, but sometimes it's when, when people pray and they, and they constantly invoke God's presence, you know, Lord, we just want you to be here, to be here, to be here. I get that hunger, we want to meet the Lord, but the truth is the Lord is already here. He has given himself, he is present in his world. What we need are better ears and eyes, sharper senses, so that we can know him better. And that's precisely what we get when we have a pure heart. When our heart has that X marks the spot and we are going after the Lord um, with a singleness of intention, our senses will be sharpened and we will know the Lord better. Um, I was thinking of this and I was reminded of a friend of mine. Um, uh, he's not a Christian anymore. And I remember in that process of losing faith, there were, there were lots of conversations, like apologetic conversations. Uh, and I think sometimes in our culture, we obsess with, with thoughts about God as if the thoughts are the same as the real thing. Um, and at the end of it, the crux of why he abandoned his faith was he said he had never experienced God. He had never experienced God. But reflecting on that, I think a problem for that friend was he hadn't learned enough from the Bible, from, from stories like Moses and, uh, and David and Jacob and the disciples to know what a genuine encounter with the Lord actually feels like. Um, because when we, ins- we experience God truly it is always an experience that is consistent with God's true nature. And when I read these stories, I can't read them in any other way except that they are records of actual encounters between the living, holy God and real people. Now, now our experience of meeting God is always restricted to an extent because of sin. As Paul says, we're always looking through a glass dimly, but God is still here. He is with us. Um, one of my stock phrases in conversations with young people is this, when they're, when they're, when they're questioning God's existence, and, and, they, and they can never defeat this argument, right? It's great. Um, I, I say, if God is real, if God is real as fact, you not believing in God can't affect his being real, okay? If God is God, he is already here. He is everywhere, But what's clear in these stories is that in his nature, God is the humble, invisible, hidden one. At the same time, he is the all-powerful, holy, and glorious one. You can feed your sheep for 40 years on the same plot of land without seeing him. You can walk with the same man for three years without realizing you're walking with the Son of God. You can worship in the temple every day without seeing the Lord whose temple it is. Then boom, you're floored. 
You're floored by the realization that he was in this place and I knew it not. And I think that's why people in the scriptures uh, encounter God more often in the wilderness. I think it's partly because the wilderness takes us away from the noise of the world, but it's also because the wilderness is more compatible with God's nature. That's why Elijah heard God in the still, small voice and not the violent storm. That's why David says, be still, be still and know that I am God. So here's the gist. So close this out. If we are pure in heart, we will more often be confronted with the reality of God's presence this side of heaven. Um, I alluded to it earlier, but I I get anxiety. Um, Someone reminded me recently, okay, but however I feel, north is still north. What they mean is, however we feel, the truth is still the truth. And the truth is, the Lord is in this place, even if experientially we don't feel that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, closing this, I was thinking, what are some of the obstacles? What are the challenges? What are the barriers that prevent us from pursuing that single-minded determination to pursue the Lord? Three things. The first uh, was the sinful nature. Okay, uh, Speaking to myself here, so often we live in this world, our hearts are still um, messed up, and we have a desire for the things of the world. An idol is anything but takes precedence over God. On the map of our heart, okay, if it was a map and laid out before us, the big X wouldn't be God. It's any number of other things, um, money, pleasure, career, ambition, security, image. Um, what I want to say to you this morning is if the Spirit is convicting you and saying you need to make God your big X, okay, um, you need to press into that. You need to press into that because the truth is it, it, it's not our job to change our heart. We can't do that. You know, that's like a, that's like a wasteland of, of, of human destruction trying to change your own hearts, okay? It's the Spirit's job to come in and to rewrite the map of our heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit rewrites. Um, and the, the map of our heart changes the terrain, okay? So it is oriented towards God, right? So if you feel the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, saying, I, I'm clinging too tightly to this thing, um, and you're wanting to open... Your, your, your fist just to, to, to let go to an extent of that thing. This may be valuable, okay, but, but I guarantee it's also causing stress and fear and anxiety to worry of losing it, right? If the Spirit is saying, you need to let go of this thing and let, and let, let the Lord be your big X, you need to press into that and cooperate with the Holy Spirit, with the gracious Lord who's here. Um, the second thing is the noise of the world. Um, our social feeds are usually created and curated by lost souls who have placed the big X on the wrong coordinates who are set and convincing us that their map is correct. Um, In fact, we live in a world that's specifically designed so that we don't need to think about or turn to God um, in everyday life. So I think there's a lesson here. Um, The word that came to mind was let's be selective. 
let's be selective about um, what we consume, about what we do with our time. All those things I mentioned earlier, money, pleasure, career, family, image, security, that they're good things, right? Okay. Um, most of the things we spend our time on are, are good things, but let's be selective. Let's be selective in what we consume. So the sinful nature, the noise of the world, the final thing is the violence of the world. Um, you see, we're not just doers of sin. Uh, we're all victims of sin. And in my work, I work with so many young people who have experienced past and ongoing traumas. Um, and when we're hurt, it's natural to protect our heart, okay? Uh, for legitimate reasons, because we don't want to get hurt, hurt again. And if you were to take one of these um, young person's hearts and plot the map down, you'd see defensive structures all around it and big, high defensive walls. They don't want to let you in um, because they've been hurt. Um, I'm thinking of a young person who was really let down by someone who uh, claimed to be a Christian. And I've had so many conversations with that young person, but because they've been so hurt um, and associate church stuff with um, that neglect, um, their, their heart is so um, naturally hardened to be responsive to this stuff. And I think to some extent that's totally legitimate. Um, but what I'd say to anyone here who maybe feels, it's not that I'm selfish, it's not that I'm distracted by the world, I've been hurt and my heart's been damaged. Um, I want to tell you this morning there's still hope. Um, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart. I will place a new spirit within you. There is authentic hope, and that stuff, those past experiences, don't have to define or limit you. The Lord, in his gentleness and his, in his graciousness, will work with you to create that, that new heart, that new world map that will allow you to navigate life differently um, without ignoring the stuff that's happened to you. Right? The Lord never does that. Um, he, he understands um, that he, um, um, suffer, he is the God who suffers with us, but he is still able in the midst of that to, to give you a new heart. Um, so some of us um, are distracted by the sinful nature. Some of us um, are just distracted by the noise of the world. And some of us are, um, have, have just been really badly damaged by the violence of the world. Um, but for those of us here who maybe don't have those legitimate reasons, those deep, deep hurts, um, who are influenced more by just the noisiness of our consumer society, by apathy, my challenge is this, okay? But we would increasingly, as individuals and as a church family, become a people who go after that one thing that's necessary, who seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, because not only is it the right thing for us to do, I'm also convinced that this is what, this is what will happen when we do that. And I actually sense it's starting to happen um, here in Central. People will meet God and find freedom through us. The lands will be turned and there will be a clarity of focus so that people will know that the Lord is in this place. As we pursue God more honestly, more clearly in worship and prayer, the census divinitatis, that God-homing beacon and people will sniff it out and more people will be drawn to the truth. 
both here in this building as we worship, but also maybe more significantly in all the other places we live our lives, around tables and homes and busy hospital wards and bars and classrooms, people will meet God and will be transformed by him.